But I think the preoccupation, especially with things like masquerade, that that people had in the colonial era and sort of this residual post-colonial era has had a lot to do with a campaign, whether they intended to or not, a campaign to exoticize and other Africa not understand it. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. Walking into the High Museum, so you got to go up and you get up on that second floor elevator, then boom, there it is. Bruce, Honor Brock Payer, the Mask and the Cross, a new exhibition right there at the High Museum here in Atlanta, Georgia. I remember talking to today's guest, the curator of African art at the High Museum, Lauren Tate Baeza. Remember that name, it's very important. <laughs> she mentioned that she was working on this exhibition and that she think I would like it. Well, let me tell you. I don't like it. I love it. I love it. Love it. You know how black people, they talk two times. You got to say it two times. I love it. Love it. <laughs> you know, I love the prints and this kind of wonderful work is exactly what I love to see all the time. I go see this exhibition all the time. If y'all want to go see it, just holler at your boy. I go see it again. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> I'm gonna see this exhibition a couple times. That's how much I loved it. Fortunately for me, I get to talk with Lauren in depth about the show. She talks about Bruce's historic career over in Nigeria and putting together an exhibition of this caliber in this kind of esteemed institution down here in Atlanta, the High Museum. And you get a little taste of Lauren's scholarly mind from how she considers post-colonial Nigerian art and contemporary African art in general and how it's regarded in these institutions. Then you get a little bit of our experience as jurors for the Hudgens Prize. Overall, you just get to know an extremely talented, extremely amazing Lauren Tate by Aza right here on the podcast. It's the noise, baby. Studio noise. The voice of black art from emerging to veteran artists in contemporary art world to curators in these major institutions shaping the narratives of black contemporary art. We got them all for you to keep you inspired and keep you making that noise in the studio, baby. Let's just listen to us and just keep that thing going. Presented by Black Art in America. The Black Art Family Reunion is coming at you Juneteenth weekend, June 16th through the 19th. Collectors panels, artist talks, lectures, networking, a good old fashioned family cookout, a real action packed weekend at the Buy Gallery, 1802 Connolly Drive, East Point, Georgia. A big list of guests like Phyllis Stevens and Alfred Conte and so many more. It's going to be a good time June 16th through the 19th. Come on down, get your tickets, and learn more at www.blackartamerica.com. And after the break, it's Lauren Tate by Aza spreading black brilliance in your speakers. <laughs> it's the noise, baby. Yes. This is Chris Clark, a.k.a. Cooley Ross, professional artist, muralist, and you are listening to Studio Noise. All right, it's your boy Jay Barber back with you, Studio Noise Podcast. 
the voice of black art, bringing you the very best. We live at the Buyer Gallery once again. Y'all checking out, whether you're looking at it on YouTube or you're checking on the podcast, we here. I brought a very extra special guest. We got my friend, Lauren Tate Baeza, here with us on the podcast. How are you doing, you. I'm Lauren? doing amazing. I'm so happy to be here in <laughs> yeah. this blackity black space. Oh, it's super black. We, we <laughs> black black today. <laughs> Lauren is the curator of African art at the High Museum, amongst other things that you do. Matter of fact, Lauren, introduce yourself. Tell the people what you do. I'm Lauren Tate Baeza. I, uh, I'm a curator. I'm a writer. I'm a scholar. I'm particularly interested in 20th century African art, especially art of po- great political transitions like late colonialism, early post-colonialism, apartheid transition. Um, I'm really, really interested in how artists express themselves um, during these periods of time and what we can learn about the functionality and purpose of art um, from these moments of sort of heightened transitions. Um, I use transitions a lot, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's a transition. Jamal gave me Chardonnay, so... Yes, this is the Drink Champs edition of, <laughs> of the Noah's today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm a curator of African art at the high, as you said, but I work on a lot of other projects on the continent especially. Yeah. I'm really excited to do that. And that's what I, I find very impressive about you is how much work you do, how much traveling, all the different projects... You're a woman of many, many talents. Thank you, so, sir. Yo, and, and you managed to look beautiful while you're doing it. Oh, look how she dressed. Thank Y'all you. need to check out the video. <laughs> <laughs> but looking fabulous while you're doing it. Try but, to stay hydrated. So Lauren is, we, I'm so glad we caught Lauren because she was just in New York. She was just overseas. She was just everywhere. Anytime <laughs> you talk to her, she just got back from somewhere. But now she's here in Atlanta with us. And if you haven't had a chance, y'all have until July 30th to come and see this wonderful, tremendous show. And you know I'm a print lover. So I love this show. Bruce Anapakea. Did I say it right? Anapakea. Anapakea. The Mask and the Cross. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful exhibition. Second floor to high. It's really, really awesome. And Lauren was the curator for it. Yes. So Lauren made it all happen. So you know we had to get Lauren on the show <laughs> to show how giddy with excitement I am just, <laughs> just from looking at all the wonderful prints. First of all, we got to talk about Bruce. Tell us about Bruce and his kind of history. Yeah. So I'm really honored to do the show. Um, I should say that when I first um, accepted the position at the High Museum, um, there was already a block on the calendar. It had been some time since they'd had a curator of African art. Um, we were in the middle of the pandemic when I was hired. Um, and they were just eager to have an exhibition of African art because it had been a while. And so there was just this block that said, African art exhibit. And I was like, oh God, I got to figure out what to do in like a year and a half, um, which is not a lot of time. Um, You know, so I started just digging into the collection, trying to understand what I had inherited um, so that I could respond to that, whether that was to opportunities in the collection or to strengths in the collection. Um, I didn't want to just go blindly into this position with what I personally find interesting. I really wanted to be responsive to and sort of celebrate um, and add value to all the previous collecting efforts. Um, so when I was doing that, I discovered, uh, firstly, that a large, a large, large, large uh, percentage of our collection is Nigerian. And I thought that was a really incredible opportunity because um, we are a sister city to Lagos. We have a, a growing, a large and growing Nigerian population in the metropolitan area, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I thought that, hmm, that's interesting. It's a new way to engage our community. Um, and then I found a complete series of Bruce Onobrakpeya prints uh, called The Stations of the Cross. 
And so from there, I decided, okay, this is going to be the show. Um, I only have one of the small galleries to use. I can try to tell a very uh, simple story about this incredibly uh, important and famous artist's career. Um, and that was uh, his Christian motifs throughout his career, the, the commissions he did with the Catholic Church. Um, and I say that because he has been making work for 65 years or so. Wow. He's, he's about to turn 91. <laughs> and um, still doing it. Still doing it. And, and as you can imagine, in that time, has done a lot of different types of work, mm -hmm. right? Like, he, you know, a lot of art historians kind of uh, group his, um, his artistic career into sort of eight phases, eight creative phases. Mm -hmm. And this mask in the cross phase is just one of eight. So it's, again, very select, small way to sort of narrow way to kind of filter through his uh, career um, without um, feeling like you're shorting people. If I tried to do a survey in a small space, I would be giving you such a tiny bit of everything. And I yeah. thought it would be more robust to pick uh, a creative period and tell that story fully. But uh, of course, with that is the risk of people who are being introduced to his work for the first time, not understanding that he's not the Nigerian Christian artist. He's, right. This is just a, a, a something that he does, yeah. but he has so many other um, expressions, so many other concepts that he expresses in his work over time. So he's extremely, extremely well known. Um, he has every highest national honor in his home country of Nigeria. Um, he's got a UNESCO, you know, Living Treasure Award. He's had recognition <laughs> at the Venice Biennale long before there was even a Nigerian pavilion at wow. the Venice Biennale. So he's quite acclaimed. Um, and I was actually quite surprised to learn when I started working on this show that this is his first United States solo exhibition. So that it made it even more important. Um, yeah. And I feel even more honored uh, yeah. to be the person that made this happen. Yeah. I, th I think this one I love about uh, going to the high and introduce to people like you to have like a vast range of expertise in what they do, because you do get introduced to these people that uh, I would never have known his name, honestly. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Unless you like in, have an in-depth study of Nigerian art, mm -hmm. you, I, his name wouldn't have come to the forefront of, of what I was looking at. And so I think that's a shame. Yeah. Like now I've been looking at him like voraciously <laughs> <laughs> since I looked at the French. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say nah, that. That's the idea. Yeah, because it really is magnificent. So all this time, did he start out as a as a printmaker? No, he actually studied painting um, in university. So he went to um, the University of Nigeria at Zaria, as it was called at the time. Um, and he studied fine art, but with an emphasis in painting. And he started going to workshops after he graduated um, in Oshogbo and other places and fell madly in love with printmaking. And he had some cursory introduction to printmaking as an art student in university, mm -hmm. but it really was these postgraduate workshops that he went to that transformed him. He said, um, I think it was Ruven Rosum, actually, the printmaker, the Dutch printmaker, oh, wow. um, was <laughs> his teacher who taught him all these tricks, taught him how to innovate printmaking, exposed him to printmaking in a different way than what he was exposed to with the cursory introduction in university. And he was hooked. He said he didn't paint for 15 to 20 years wow. after that. Yeah. Of course, sounds, he started to reincorporate like yeah. it. He started to reincorporate <laughs> it later. But um, yeah, he was he was hooked on exploring sort of um, the depth of printmaking and how much can you, how far can you push this medium? Yeah. You know? I love it. Yeah. I love it. And we're all better for it. He yes. did a tremendous job. And um, so the work that's in the show is the Stations of the Cross. Then there's uh, the middle section. What's the middle section? May Your Kingdom Come. So uh, I should back up and say that uh, the first, there's three sections to the exhibition and its uh, current iteration. It may travel. Stay tuned for that. 
Um, but at the High Museum, um, there's three sections to this exhibit. The first two are commissions that he received directly from the Catholic Church, facilitated by Reverend Father Kevin Carroll. And then the last section really gets into his technique, um, and it pulls examples from uh, later on, 1975 through about 2022, um, where he is continuing to revisit some of these initial themes right. from earlier in his career. Yeah. The two commissions happened in the late 60s. Um, the first was Stations of the Cross, where, um, which actually came out of a commission that he received to do a mural inside of a church um, uh, around the ceiling, like the periphery. Um, and then later on, two years later, actually, after he completed that mural, uh, which would have been 1967, he went back to his studies and drawings that he was, you know, using as references for the mural, and he made this beautiful series of prints. Um, so that's in the first room. In the second room is their artist proofs. They were never intended to be seen. I, he, he gifted this to me. He trusted me with it. He's uh, quite jealous with his things. He's very protective <laughs> of his things. Um, and I'm, again, very honored that he um, trusted me with it because there's, there's no other copies of them. They are all mm. just a single edition prints that he made for a book. So he was commissioned to illustrate um, a book for the national, um, in Nigeria, the National Catholic School Program um, for fifth through sixth year students. Um, so it was, you know, all the great stories uh, of, of the Bible uh, and they needed to be illustrated. He did 60 illustrations for it, black and white illustrations. Um, and this is the first time they've anyone's seen them outside of that book. That's amazing. That book was in circulation for a long time. Um, and generations of children would have seen Bruce Ono Brakpea's um, illustrations in that book. It's important to say that because Bruce is not just famous because he's like a, an important artist. He's also like just a part of you know, popular culture in this way. He's illustrated so many important books. People grow up seeing his his line making and his way mm. uh, of visualizing things because of uh, his ongoing um, sort of career as someone who is commissioned to illustrate a number of things that would be in your everyday life. <laughs> so he's bigger than, I think, than just a regular famous fine artist. Um, he's just a part of- That's amazing. The last, you know, 60 years of, so many aspects of Nigerian culture. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. That is, he's one of those ubiquitous artists. Mm -hmm. Like just his style is known for. Yeah, like you know, you're you would grow up not maybe not even knowing his name, but your everyone's household had like some print on the wall, yeah. even if it was like a postcard, you yeah. know, framed or a poster, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that kind of. How kind big? Of a how big a deal was it for him to be commissioned by the church to do those murals in the first place? <sighs> I think the big deal of it came afterwards. So the Catholic Church, this this father that I mentioned previously, they were working, I think they began working in Nigeria in 1947. Um, and this particular branch of the Society of African Missions, um, their missionary practice was creative. They created all these art programs. And you have to think, if they were operating um, most prolifically from 1947 until the um, early 70s, this is a crucial time, mm -hmm. you know, the time that I care about that I spoke about at the beginning. <laughs> yes, this is the colonial period, early <laughs> post-colonial period. Um, and so for a lot of artists um, that ended up becoming these giants in the Nigerian art world, um, like Bruce Ono Brakpea, um, they were able to receive some of their first important commissions and to really sort of um, flex their muscles and spread their wings as living, practicing artists who could 
you know, feed themselves on this yeah. um, because of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church has this really interesting and surprising relationship with Nigerian modernism that people wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. And so I hope that's implied in the show and that people pick up on that. But I think that's an exhibition of its own. Because <laughs> they commissioned a number of artists who became very well known, like Bakaye, who was a sculptor from Nigeria, um, to do these incredible commissions inside of church interiors, which of course, um, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, that is that's been going on since the beginning, yeah. right? Like these yeah. beautiful, ornately decorated churches. So that part's not surprising. That part's common. What's surprising or different, I should say, maybe, um, was that these particular priests encouraged and uh, probably, <laughs> probably rather enthusiastically, um, these artists to to make these works be culturally relevant. Mm. They had a lot of creative control, um, which is why in these uh, in these series, both the uh, 14th Station of the Cross, Section One of the exhibition, and in May Your Kingdom Come, Section Two, uh, where we see these artist proofs for the book you see distinctly nigerian backgrounds yeah. um nigerian clothing yeah. um in the colored ones you can see brown jesus yeah. um and they did that was not of concern to them um the story the message the feeling of christ and the the goodness in the bible uh the the, the lessons it offers was the, was the point yeah so they didn't get lost in the weeds trying to convince people uh that you know jesus was blonde hair blue eyed and you know they didn't really get they weren't concerned at all um these, these priests that is with um historic or geographic accuracy right this isn't rome or israel yeah we're gonna go ahead and put this in house of land and this thing in yoruba land and we don't we don't mind yeah. because the story is the point um and uh that was not always well received um by the the greater um catholic community ironically or non-erratically if you know a little bit more about the context of these kinds of things. Um, a lot of the more conservative Nigerian Christians were the ones that were the most outspoken about yeah. this being wrong or blasphemous. But uh, by and large, it was well-received and it really helped to sort of hasten and catapult his career and the career of other artists that had these commissions. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because he would expect, or, or I would expect, a lot of pushback of, of showing a black Jesus. Like, you know, that's, you know, blasphemy one-on-one America, like we never, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we have like the black Jesus pictures in grandma house, but that's in grandma house. Right. Ain't, that, <laughs> that ain't nowhere where people can see it, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so I would, in, for the church to commission it personally, I think is fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. These, these even, priests were considered relatively radical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but even like the outfits where you were telling me that the outfits were, of the actual troops that were uh, post-colonial troops in Nigeria, their outfits are shown on some of the soldiers that are yeah. inside of the prince. They were actually colonial era, which is even more interesting because he made these in the immediate post-colonial era, but he was referencing, mm. you know, Nigerian um, political history. So uh, during colonialism, the the police units um, that were there at the time to sort of be extensions of the crown and its initiatives. Um, he painted them as uh, he painted their uniforms into the pieces as the people that were prosecuting Jesus, not the people that condemned him, but the people that were making sure that the work was carried out. Right. Um, so he's saying a lot there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, a whole lot. <laughs> another. Speaking of clothes, another thing I love about the show um, that really speaks to the time that uh, those the first two sections were commissioned, which again is um, you know 
66 through 69 um, for our show um, is that in a single work, he'll have references to a diverse range of groups. So on purpose, right? That's intentional. Mm -hmm. um, there might be a man wearing a traditional Orobo hat um, and there might be Adore Prince in the background, uh, which is Yoruba. There might be, so he's mixing all of these different ethnic groups. And I think that's important because in this time, you have to think Nigeria didn't exist. Colonialism created a thing called Nigeria. Right. And then when they were independent, they had to kind of imagine what Nigeria would now look like on their own. And they could, they had, I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> this incredible optimism. Um, and I think the ideal was for this, you know, sort of multi-ethnic, um, you know, uh, utopia. And so you can see that in some of his work in a way that I don't think you see so much later on, like a couple decades later. But in that time, you know, it's like, okay, so now nationhood means ethnic diversity and celebration of all of us and yeah. all of us is what Nigeria is, right? And so you see that in his work with the choices he makes yeah. where he's clearly referencing a broad range of different groups that live in Nigeria. Yeah. 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 And how, how amazing was it to you that Naha had all of the prints? Oh, because I mean, it was so amazing. I was like, I'm done. This is the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, th I find that fascinating because a lot of times when artists make these prints uh, and so many of them that belong in a set, it's rare that you actually keep the set together or that a museum would have the forethought to acquire the entire suite of like something. Mm -hmm. So they had to be pretty significant and pretty important. Whoever made that decision, thank you yes. uh, for doing it. But how rare is that to, for him to have so complete sets of his work? Because, I mean, you talk work for 60 years. I'm sure the man has made and forgotten more work than, <laughs> than we ever thought of. I think it's pretty rare. Um, I, even when I find a complete set at another museum, they're not all from the same um, number, right? Mm -hmm. It'll be like yeah. they filled in the gaps with like, you know, some later, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> some later editions, you yeah. know. Um, we have the whole set from the fourth edition of out of 50. Um, they're all four out of 50. Uh, so that's even yeah, more that's rare. Amazing. <laughs> that is um, amazing. Yeah. So that's been cool to see. Um, yeah. I, I would say that's extremely rare. Yeah. What did Bruce say about him? Cause you, cause there's a video in this show where you uh, went over and talked to him. Mm -hmm. so I'm sure you had like mad long conversation with the man. He, he looked like he can talk. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I, for, while I was working on this show, I got to sit with him about five times. Um, and um, most of the time, I have to say, it, it, and this is completely fair, it was trust earning. Mm. A lot of it was him interviewing me, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I'm glad I passed. As I said, he <laughs> trusted me with works that people didn't even know existed. Some of his children even told me they didn't realize he had so many of those proofs. Wow. Because... Um, 50 years, you yeah. know, plus. He's been making. Keep, yeah, so keeping those things around, he's got them tucked away. You know, he's selective about who he shares them with or who knows what he has. Um, so um, we talked a lot, but he was really um, clear about how keen he was to do um, the series. He's, I'm under the impression, um, based on what he told me, that he did take time to think about whether or not he wanted to do it. Mm. I think he took close to a year considering whether or not he was going to take that first commission, which was the mural that ended up becoming the, the prince for um, Stations of the Cross. But um, once he, you know, was resolved 
about it. But what did, he what felt did he very say, strong. What did he say was the determination to actually help him think about doing it? I don't know. I, I wonder if he was considering things like, I can only guess. Uh, he didn't really articulate to me why he pondered it for so long, but if I had to guess, I would think um, he, some concerns about the controversy mm-hmm. um, because he would want to do it his way. Um, I would imagine uh, maybe feeling like uh, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as um, a Christian artist. Yeah. Um, I would imagine feeling like he's not Catholic and maybe he shouldn't be doing this as a non-Catholic. He's actually Anglican. He taught at a Catholic school, which is how the priest found him. Um, I mean, he also, the priest also did a lot. I learned this through going through uh, Kevin Carroll's archives in Cork, Ireland, that he did a lot of inquiries as well. So Bruce was also recommended, but I think the network was yeah. obviously like most immediately the Catholic schools, the yeah. Catholic churches. Um, so I made, that could have been a part of it, that he's like, I'm not Catholic. And he, in the video, as you may recall, in the exhibition, he says it, first of all, he's like, first I want to say I'm not Catholic, <laughs> yeah. right? Like he might be a little subconscious yeah. about that because, you know, just like any of us would be like, you know, I'm not this ethnic group, but I'm doing a show about this ethnic group or I'm not this religion, but I'm doing a show about this religion. Um, he wants to disclose that and be transparent about that. And so he, what the, what's powerful about saying that is that then you can go into part two, which is, this is my specific telling. Right. And you are the authority on your own exactly. interpretation. Yeah. No I one can take say, that away yeah. from you, right? <laughs> now, if you've disclosed that, hey, I'm not this thing, but this is how I see it and this is what it means to me, mm-hmm. it's a really powerful thing to do. Um, so I think that's probably where he landed because that's what he says all the time now, um, that he was like, well, you know what? I can still speak to this story. And, anyway, and anyhow, as he says in the video, Anglican and Catholic aren't that different. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and do this the way I want to because I think the story of Jesus is the point and I can get with you know, what these priests are trying to do yeah. by commissioning us. And they're creating an ecosystem for us to actually live. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're giving us some funding and finances to continue to do other types of work. And I want to support that. Yeah. And because I would think that he wouldn't want to be a part of any propaganda Right. Uh, that was taking place. Right. You know, it, it, that's a very easy way for you to use certain artists, create certain imagery. Now it's being used for purposes that you didn't intend. I would I would take long thoughts about that, too. Yeah. To your point, he's probably a little suspicious, like what kind of what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Who are these people? Right. And I think he had time. He gave himself time to go see other artists that he had commissioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was really impressed with that work. He says that in this book, uh, The Spirit and Ascent, he talks about how the caliber of the work. He was like, okay, I'll be in good company because he was critical of commissions from Westerners. That is to say Europeans and Americans were, they were just satisfied with kind of garbage, Uh, low quality African art, just to call it African, right? (laughs) There was this exoticizing and this like, you know, that still happens. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yeah. In the contemporary art space. <clears throat> we love, we love them, them funny names on some. Yeah, give us some tribal something. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna buy it because um, it's black now, um, and we get to put it on a wall, and everybody knows exactly. Yeah, we're the liberals. <laughs> um, <laughs> See, I love the blacks. See, look, look at me. <laughs> look at me. And so he was like, "Well, they weren't on that." Like he went and saw other artists who had been commissioned by them. Yeah. Uh, in the Akiti program and things like that. And he was like, okay, they're serious about commissioning good work. Mm-hmm. It's not just about it being African, you know, it's about it or looking African, whatever that means yeah. when you're trying to force yeah. it, right? That's that pigeonhole. Right, right, right. <laughs> like this is, a, this is authentically 
sort of a Nigerian vernacular expression of the stories of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I can get with that. Yeah. Right? I love so. that. Um, I'm, was fascinated when going through the show and just the station of the cross. Um, there's a way in which he's printing, and this is me, the printmaker, being very Let's meticulous. Let's go technical. Yes, <laughs> meticulous and technical, nerding out. So, you know, if y'all don't like prints, you got to fast forward because I'm about to go in. <laughs> uh, and there's something about the way that he was layering colors, especially when I'm looking at him, he wasn't doing a full registered color. There's colors on top of colors, two colors on the same mm-hmm, block mm-hmm, in some instances mm-hmm. um, that kind of come in and out, uh, disturbs the image. Some of it is clear, some of it is not. And I just found the color play inside of those prints were very, very uh, expertly done. I'll say that. Part yes, in abstract, right? Because often that dance of color had nothing to do with the black and white. Yeah. Right? Like the, yeah. there wasn't coloring inside the lines, we'll say. Yes. In every instance. Yeah. Um, which obviously he was intentionally not doing, um, which I think is really interesting too. Yeah. Because um, I thought it was interesting that, yeah. speaking of coloring outside the lines, when you have certain registration, you always put the key block on the outside. So the, the black line is the border frame mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the entire print. But in a lot of these prints, the colors were not only going outside of the box, creating a new edge towards mm-hmm. the outside, but still registered in the exact same place it mm-hmm. was supposed to be. Right. And so that extra part, that extra half inch of red on the outside left part of it was meant to be there, right. which, I, which I love right? because, <laughs> because they, you know, don't, don't confine me, especially as a printmaker when you're doing stuff, mm-hmm. but it still was registered perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating work that he did. This it's was in fascinating. the 60s. I can imagine how great he is at doing stuff yeah. like at this point. So beautiful. It's really hard to, everything you just expressed, it's so hard to like show that in photographs too. Yeah. You have to be in the space with it yeah. and get close to it and step away from it and like really experience them in person. I think those things are so much more beautiful in person. And as Jamal said, I'm not just plugging a plug. Um, <laughs> I really encourage people to go and see it if they're in the Atlanta area or in the Southeast. It's on until July 30th. The, those prints are so stunning. And they didn't need almost any conservation help. Wow. The collector that we got them from was a diplomat who clearly took care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, when he passed away, his children donated it to the museum. Um, he had gotten them from Bruce directly um, back then. So um, he not only bought the whole set or was gifted the whole set, um, but he kept them in great, great condition. Yeah. The second room of prints, the black and whites that were references for the children's book, um, those needed a lot of conservation help, which is how paper twerks yeah that's how it is yeah <laughs> uh but these didn't they were just still in amazing condition they needed very little yeah help yeah um so if you're an art collector please take, take care, care of yourself yeah <laughs> take, take care of yourself if it's paper you know get it out Especially of light here and there paper, yeah, yeah. Especially you know, put it paper. in a dark dry place for a while bring it out you know to play here and there were they, were they in a portfolio like they were Okay, maybe that was one of the main things that helped it out. Yeah. Like you keep it in a portfolio, you know, wax paper in between mm-hmm. so that everything is like yeah. nice and protected uh, and they look away beautiful. from the light, like you said. Yeah. yeah. They and look then, like uh, textiles to me too. Maybe that some of that is the the movement of color mm-hmm. that you mentioned, but also uh, so many of them are on rice paper. Yeah, it's the rice paper. It it's feels the, like... It's the oil in the rice paper. It makes it like... It uh, looks like linen or something. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's one of the things where, uh, to me, I love printmaking because it's so tactile, even mm-hmm. though as much as it is uh, a visual uh, mm-hmm. texture that you're seeing, the actual touching of the paper 
you'll start to feel when wax paper gets filled with uh, oil-based ink, mm. it, it does start to have this like really velvety kind of soft kind mm. of texture to it. So I can imagine they feel like that. I know mm -hmm. nobody would ever let me touch them, but <laughs> <laughs> but if I could, I, I can imagine what mm -hmm. they feel like, what they smell like when I when I look and see them. Yeah. Uh, tell me about this in terms of setting up a show like this uh, at the high, because even in the room, it's all painted the one color and you took uh, elements from the drawings and put them up mm -hmm. on the wall. Tell me about that process of setting up a show and like how you make those decisions as you go. Like, are, is it you making those decisions or is it the people that are designing the room? Is that a, a new, different person? I think the heaviest hand most curators have is in the story that's being told. Mm -hmm. What arguments are we making blatantly implied? Um, what are the supports, meaning the artworks that are going to help us make those arguments or tell that story? And then the rest, I mean, is really... If, I think if you're doing it the best way is really collaborative. Yeah. So I have always, no matter what institution I work with, strongly relied on my design team. I think they, they are the special sauce. They help us not only cross the finish line, but like push it further than we thought. Yeah. Um, I also believe very deeply in the power of um, just space, spatial design architecture in conveying emotion, suggesting the, the path to walk down first. Mm -hmm. When you think you're making that left or right on your own free will, we're suggesting it, you know, but with the <laughs> positioning of things or the way the yeah. light is, yeah. um, that kind of stuff is really cool to me and I'm not the expert. Um, and I have so much respect for that, that I always really lean in and collaborate with designers on yeah. everything from font to color to spatial distribution of things. Um, so the suggestion to, to do some kind of graphic came kind of, in this show came kind of broadly from the director. It was one of his only notes that he gave me. And it wasn't something that he needed to happen. It was just a suggestion. He was like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Um, and then when I met with the, um, the design team, I thought the way to do that, if we were going to do it, which obviously we ended up going with, was to pull and trace directly from the works, mm -hmm. especially Adore references, because they are the thing that, he, that feature the most prominently in that room. Um, especially, but throughout the entire exhibition, he's constantly referencing those geometric shapes yeah. of Adore textiles. Yeah. Um, and Adore is indigo, it's blue. So that's the reason for that color in that room. We actually never even looked at any other palette. We looked at a million different blues, <laughs> but we never even looked outside of the blue range yeah. um, because there's so much beautiful, as you said, like these subtle differences in blues, layerings that make the blue look slightly different. Yeah. Um, and we thought that that would make the the works pop more. Oh, um, it, it definitely worked. It yeah, definitely the blue the blue I think was never a question. Yeah. Um, in the graphic that we chose in the space was yeah. the Adore for the same reasons we chose blue. I think. Yeah. He's he's clearly paying homage to um, craft tradition in the western part of yeah Nigeria. And I like the simplicity of it because I because there's so much going on inside of it, and if you understand our printmaking work, you can see how layered it is and how technical some of the stuff is, but how expressive it is like also. So I don't think it needed a lot of noise around mm -hmm. it to make it set off. I think you did just need a palette to give it uh, a place to set off from some kind of context, very subtle little idea variations of, of the symbols elsewhere. And then you turn the corner and you see this big blown up, piece of one of the mono cuts which mm -hmm. i thought was also a brilliant idea just step around that corner is boom it's, mm -hmm. it's life size thank it's like, you 
<laughs> I insist I you'll yeah. see this I have another exhibition opening at the high in a few weeks and you'll see this a pattern I love giant graphics <laughs> so much I love it too and 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 printmaking itself lends so much to this because a lot of these uh prints especially in the second room uh were no more than 10 by 12 like they're not that huge so when you do see them blown up completely you do get that second room. Those are how clean 11 they by are. eight. They, they, yeah, they're, they're smaller than very they look. small, but they're super clean. Like just in so terms of, of printing and carving, it's so magnificent. Even when you blow them up to that that scale, they still hold up as as well as in the small size as the big size. Yeah, yeah. I love that second room. That's my favorite one. Yeah. I'm not probably not supposed to pick a favorite, but <laughs> and it's because it's so simple. And I think in the simplicity is where you truly see genius. Yeah. It's like how they make chefs cook an omelet, yeah. right? To yeah. assess their real skill. Yep. If you can do something that simple and still make it signature, special, and brilliant, mm -hmm. then that's saying something. Complexity, you just you can pile on things. Yeah, you, you can intellectualize yeah. something <laughs> to death, okay? But if you can do something that's reductive and it's still powerful and makes people stop yeah. and stare at it. Yeah, there's something woo! special about it. It's something special about it. You are a true master, yeah. right? Yeah. Seeing all those prints uh, at that size, it made it got me thinking. And I went home. I told Carlton. I was there with Carlton Mackey, who also works mm -hmm. at the high. Uh, and I told him, like, I got to do more small prints because this is these are fascinating. And I'm, you know, I if you've seen my work, you know, I love large woodcuts. You know, mm -hmm. thirty six by forty eight. I'm, Jesus you know, Christ. into the big stuff. <laughs> But when I saw those like small things, I realized how much energy and impact you can have uh, just in technique and design alone. That's all. Is that all you're leaning on? Technique and design. That's all you need. Mm -hmm. And you make anything seem um, momentous. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sophisticated. Yeah. 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 I love I love those. It was a section of them that had which I found really highlighted. uh some of the keys to his technique and how he goes in and out of positive and negative space mm -hmm. and how he goes in and out of the black and white and how he has that rhythm to the prints that is very evident in the little section that you set up right there. I, I, I love the show. Thank <laughs> tell, you. It, it was, it's definitely one of my favorite. I tell everybody like, yo, you seen that brew show? <laughs> what you need to <laughs> do, you, you need to go see that brew show. I don't know what That's you're what doing you today. <laughs> yeah, what you, you doing? Yo, doing. I'll go back with you. I'll go back with you. <laughs> it's trying. a really special moment yeah. it is nah, it, of a very amazing. important artist yeah in in all of africa let alone nigeria the black art family reunion june 16th through the 19th at the Bayai gallery 1802 Connolly drive Along with live painting and live music, come for some great collector's panels featuring veteran collector Dr. Michael Butler talking about documenting and preserving your collection and moving from legacy collecting to contemporary. You know you gotta come. You know you wanna be there. Go to blackartamerica.com and learn more. Hey everybody, it's Najee Dorsey, artist, collector, founder, and CEO of Black Art in America, and you're listening to Studio Noise. bit about the the last one which has uh some of the blocks and like he does this kind of plastic technique if, if you could describe it to me a little I bit can't, I because it's kind it. of his, he kind of doesn't <laughs> like to talk about it it's a little bit of a secret but he talks about it be, being a part this is the thing i will say about it 
I love how much he embraces mistake. Mm -hmm. He's not embarrassed. You know, he forgot some of the stuff he learned from Rue and he just started playing around and he didn't have all the chemicals he needed and he started like just messing up, quote unquote. But in those eras, the I should say unintentional mm -hmm. and the unintentional things that happen, he created an entire new language for printmaking for himself. So a lot of that plastograph is uh, based around uh, sort of something that started off as unintentional that became signature. And then not only did he lean into it and not only does he share that it started off as a mistake, um, he, it, I think when that kind of thing happens, it kind of frees us. Oh yeah. He's yeah. like, I'm just going to do whatever now. I'm just going to boop, boop, yeah. boop. Just going to mix you this and you mix that. You can do that. anything. You I'm just going to, because last time I messed up, it went <laughs> great. So I'm just going to keep doing this, whatever. Throw yeah. the, you throw the like rule book behind you and you just go. Oh yeah. So he's become this incredible innovator. I love, uh, I love he that. He turned a quote unquote mistake into an entire new. Yeah. I love that moment. Lexicon. And when I, when I teach, I try to give people that moment a lot. Um, and it's a certain way you have to do it is that I have to see what they're doing, know they're going to make a mistake and encourage them to keep going. Because I know I know it's going to mess up. But it's that moment of discovery where you're like, I can literally do whatever I want. And it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the confines of the technique don't matter. Mm -hmm. Not really. Not when you really make an art, when you really get into yeah. it, when you really creating. There's so much space for you to do literally anything you want. And you really have to get to a point where you're embracing that fact. And then you're really free as an artist. And I mm -hmm. feel like that's where he is mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. He's like, oh, I can mess up and yeah, it still goes like, what? This is horribly awesome. right. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't worry about it. It's funny. And, and being conservative, half the time on the other side of that era is something greater. Yeah. It's something that you would have never done. Yeah. Right. So thank goodness. I like to think of it. Uh, Olu Moda talks about this a lot. And I know we'll talk about him in yep. a moment. Um, you know, I love this idea of collaborating with whatever the materials, the moment, yeah, the thing, yeah, which starts to get into spirituality again, <laughs> right? You know, it's it's partly there because you know you you spend so much time with this thing, and I think that's what people um, need to. Appreciate. The muses are whispering in your ear anyway, all the time, right? All like it's time. not like. You know, we take our ego out of it, which <laughs> literally a mistake makes you do, right? You're like, yeah. oh, that didn't work out the way I wanted. Yeah. And then once you start removing the ego, you get closer to that mm -hmm. greater thing Yeah. that we can't you, articulate. Even when you spend, uh, even with those small prints, his hands have touched every centimeter of it, right? Every part of it, the upside, the downside, I've inked it, I've carved it, I've interacted, I've molded this thing, me and this thing mm -hmm. have a bond now, whether mm -hmm. we, <laughs> whether we want to admit it or not and then the printing is kind of to me as an after effect of it mm -hmm. like it's a bonus to whatever journey the and discovery process. i've had mm -hmm. along the way and none of the material is lost because even in the show you have uh, some of his metal uh etching plates you have the big wooden sculpture assemblage like of a print of block i don't even know what it is like yeah. it's become its own thing at this point which i love yeah that's what i love is there's no wasted material it's like the final frontier i, I think about that all the time he's like he went everywhere with printmaking and then yeah. he was like what's left i'll do something with the plates <laughs> now the plates are sculptures yeah that's that, incredible and it's also got... extremely transparent mm -hmm. which again he does right like he's honest about plastograph being a mistake and then i made it a thing um 
you know, I, I love that. Yeah. He's just, he's totally dancing with the muses and mm -hmm. he just leans in. And, and the material becomes important. He's a very, it's worth saying, he's such a kind person too. He's such a kind man. I can believe that. You, yeah. don't, <laughs> you don't make art for 60 years. And not be, <laughs> not be you did nice. something right. Yeah, you did something right. <laughs> um, I wanted to make a point about you talking about going, scaling back down. There's something about small works too that um, it makes you get closer. It makes it, it, um, it encourages stillness, yeah. I'll say. Yeah. Like you have to get close to it. You have to have an intimate experience with it. And so when you were talking about the hands that touched every corner, I'm like, when you get close to something, you kind of can get a sense of that. Yeah. You can't necessarily aesthetically see it. It's not like it's covered in fingerprints, but you get a sense for it because you've gotten so close to the work yeah. and you've had to think about it. And there's a reflection that's happening there, perhaps, you know, arguably longer mm -hmm. than when you have to stand at a distance yeah. to take in the whole scale of a larger work. Absolutely. And that's always really nice. Absolutely. I love that the exhibition gives us both, you know, there's that big moment at the end where everything's scalable, like, you know, everything's yeah. of scale rather. Um, but uh, yeah, you have a you have this quiet moments for the first two thirds, um, where you really are invited to explore the work and try to understand it and think yeah. about it and and access that which is here and here. Yeah. Um, in addition to here. Yeah, and that last room really is an exploration because he's dipping into a lot of different designs. Like you mm -hmm. see images pop up in in different iterations, mm -hmm. and so which I love that kind of exploration where. All right, use this uh, mother and child in this one. Bring that same mother and child back, but I'm going to add a little bit more to this. And now it's in a circle. Mm -hmm. And now, now it's in metal. Now it's like all these different things can happen. But the same, the image is basically the same. You see it in three or four times. There's wonder, three mother and childs. Yeah. There's three last suppers. Yeah. And he's scaling them up. He's scaling them down. Sometimes yep. he's just redrawing. He's making it in a new part ways. Of the else. title's exactly the same. Yep. That is not a coincidence. You know, really cool. Yeah. yeah. He just re, for him, he's a very, and, and I'm sure this is why the show, one of the reasons the show resonates with you, he's a very process focused artist. Yeah. He doesn't very care about process. creating, quote unquote, a new image. He will literally draw the same image over and over again. He will reuse plates. He will reuse matrices, whatever. Um, but then he'll completely apply a different process to yeah. it. And that's what makes the works unique. There are some that misunderstand Bruce's work. They'll say, there's so many of these, so the value is, is less. But none of them are the same. None of them are the same. Yeah. None of them. None of them are the same. That's a, the same people walk up to me when I'm out doing shows and it's like, they see my print and ask me where the original is. And it's kind of... This is the original. Like, you don't <laughs> understand what you're looking at. Like, let me explain it to you. Like, is that type this of thing. This is what printmaking is. <laughs> <laughs> is. That type of thing. And so even the, this Bruce show, to me, is a real uh, embrace of the print process because um, what I like to tell my students to free them up is if you have three different ideas, three, five, ten ideas, you can do all of them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be confined with this single image of the thing. And now I'm done with this woodblock forever. Like, no, reprint it. Print it in blue. Print it in red. Then make a sculpture out make of it. Make a sculpture out of it. Apparently. Like, yeah, like you, you do. Like, eventually make, just make a sculpture out of <laughs> exactly. the block. Like, that's, that's the point of it. Like, you have to embrace the process. You have to be free and uh, just go with it. Like, yeah. what, what is, and what don't is your be, mind And don't you? be precious about it, right? Exactly. When I, when I think about the blocks that he's turned into sculptures and given away, like, he just if he misses it, he just makes another one. Make another he one. He just makes another block. <laughs> Of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I love that. 
Yeah. So you you mentioned that I'm asking you questions now. Oh, that's go for okay. it. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you you really liked um, the smaller scale, and it made you think about incorporating that a little bit more again. What else did you walk away with in terms of as I'm asking you this very specifically because you're a printmaker? Um, how <laughs> how else were you inspired in, in terms of the ways you're thinking about your own practice after you're seeing that show? I think the way in which he was uh, tackling color um, and the layering process, especially in the stages of the cross, like when I look at it, um, I'm not just looking at it as a viewer. I'm looking at it as a printmaker. I'm looking at it to reverse engineer. Like, mm-hmm. how did he do this? Because mm-hmm. I want to, I don't, I want to see it and enjoy it, but I also want to understand it fundamentally. Like, mm-hmm. what did he do? How did he do it? <laughs> like, when did he add that yellow and that green and that blue, like right over top? Like, this it's not an accident. Like, he had to plan it. That's what printmaking is. So it's because I understand that part of the process. Um. I'm looking to use it in my own thing because some of that texture, Mm -hmm. my goodness, some of the texture that he created Mm -hmm. um, with some of that layering in those cross pieces, I gotta go see the show because the pictures that I post on Studio Noise is not gonna do it justice. You really have to see it. But the texture that he can get, and then if you overlay the key block, which is black on top of it, you still see the image clearly. You see Jesus, you see the cross, you see the, ooh, what I really love, a lot of different designs in the crosses mm-hmm. as they go from one to one. I love it. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to, have never kinda, the same. to have that kind of texture inside of them, I can imagine that if, you, if there was a run of 50, all of them probably have a different texture. Oh, yeah. Because there's no way to duplicate it. There's no way for you to get that exact stroke of green inside of this blue, beside this red each time you do it so that kind of the way that he's printing is such a freedom mm-hmm. that I think we westernize ideas of super tight registration all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to add that element of freedom to my work when I see it. Yeah. So when I walk away, I see that and I also see the, the small works for me were very impressive because they're so clean. Mm-hmm. They're so clean. Like they, like, there's no, and I'm not the person to know this. He will probably be able to tell you for sure, but there's no wrong marks. There's mm. no extra marks made. This is exactly the way it should go. Like this tree, this one smooth <laughs> cut, I yeah. can see him. You can count him. You, I love it in a, in a print where everything is so clear, but you can count the marks mm. inside of it to get the texture. Like mm-hmm. how did he do it? It seems so simple, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that he could probably do it. I mean, he's 90 years old. He could probably do it in like 10 minutes. <laughs> but, but you know, it, you take a, it takes a lifetime of experience to be able to confidently make those marks as quickly at that size and move on and mm-hmm. let it be whatever it is. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of that letting it be inside of it that, yeah. you know, I appreciate it. No, oh, thank you for that. Nothing. Yeah, I think, I think it's a, what you're saying is kind of like it's a balance between like technique, intentionality and play yeah yeah it's the freedom yeah. we gotta remember to a, play yeah we right? gotta set it a bunch as of creative times. and at a certain point you kind of unlock this level of mastery that frees you from all conventions mm-hmm. i could do whatever i want mm-hmm. <laughs> and i feel like that's what he did in, in a lot of these pieces because they feel effortless they don't feel like they were labored over they don't right. feel like he adjusted and readjusted and did this and did that and but everything fits 
Mm-hmm. Like it's supposed to. It's mm-hmm. it, they're wonderful prints. <laughs> they're absolutely <laughs> magnificent prints. I love it. Thanks. Yeah. I'm so happy you like the show. You're so geeked about the show. I am. I, I, I am. I this is go my back favorite again. thing. <laughs> Almost every printmaker that's come to see the show is like a different level of appreciation for it, which is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Because we know how hard it is. <laughs> how hard it is. Are you doing this in the sixties? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, man. I've had a couple of friends that are printmakers come there and look at me like, what? <laughs> Already, like first first thing they see, you know that um, uh, David the Shepherd. Yeah, ah, love that. One. I had, I think it was Atu Ribeiro, like sent me a text uh, of the photograph, a photograph of that print, which yeah. which is hilarious because it's literally the it's isolated, it's right in the front. <laughs> it's the first thing, and he sent it to me. He's like, already. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for calling you out, Atu. <laughs> Yeah, that, it's, but it's he, a great you show. know, he's known as a sculptor, but he studied printmaking. Yeah. So I think you all have a different. You get to enjoy it on on levels that maybe everyone else can. Yeah, because if if you understand it, then you know how hard it is. How yeah. hard it is. Yeah. It's not it's not an easy thing that you're looking at. Like, and we can take that from granted in a lot of stuff that you see in museums mm-hmm. because you see the finished product, you see it in a big white walls, mm-hmm. uh, white spaces, everything is clean. Mm-hmm. Like you know, security guards are telling you not to touch it. Like all this stuff, <laughs> but. You don't realize this this was labored over. Yeah. This this was this took time. This yeah. took energy. This took years of experience. Like it does it doesn't just happen mm-hmm. that you end up with this Rauschenberg inside of the hive. Like right. it don't, it don't <laughs> it's not a mistake. It wasn't you know? a first it wasn't his first time out. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, what what do you enjoy the most about making those kind of discoveries? Because you do get to play in this collection um that and quite frankly when we talk about the high, and this is no uh, diss to the high, <laughs> but they're not experts in, in showing in, in African art, especially contemporary African art. Yeah, I think we're, we're really known for um, our photography and folk art collections. I think they're world class. Um, my colleagues who manage those departments have a reputation that they just get to kind of play in and build upon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm tr- <laughs> I, on the other hand, am trying to build a whole new thing from scratch. So, yeah, I think I think I have my work cut out for me a little bit. Just a little ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You think so? So the horse I rode in on was to create a leading collection of 20th century African art, Mm -hmm. which is not what we're known for. No, not at all. We do have these really important, you know, a really important starter kit, I'll say. So we have incredible photography from Malik Sidibe and Sanle Sore, who were doing portrait photography in the early post-colonial period that is <laughs> in- incredibly important. Um, we have the Bruce Onobrakpea. We have Twin 7-7, uh, who was an important Ashogbo artist. Um, we have Iban Jaye, who was a Senegalese, um, especially draftsman, but artist of all, all types, um, <clears throat> and uh, an early post-colonial Senegal. And, so I ha- and we have a number of late apartheid era, early post-apartheid era artists as well in our collection. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that gave me sort of a justification for, hey, we've got a little bit of a head start. Let's be more intentional about building this out and making this more robust. Right. But it is quite the challenge. (laughs) I didn't inherit an incredible collection of African modernism. No. I'm trying to build one from scratch, essentially. Not from scratch, scratch, but from... A yeah. modest offering, but an important offering. We've got some really important artists. So, again, I think that I think it, it gives me the justification 
to continue to focus on it. And the museum has been really supportive of that. That's good because you, especially a lot of institutions, they can get caught up in uh, ending the African story at some level where the British stole everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so nothing to, to some people in the high collection has been like this for a while because they used to have all the African stuff in the basement. Mm. And I used to go there all the time and see the little videos of like the performances and, the, you know, the costumes and stuff like that. The little sculptures. Nothing after that. Right. Um, Africa only exists in the past. Exactly. Did you and know? So, <laughs> so that kind of, uh, of, of distorting the story of what Africans were doing the entire time, which, which especially as you talk about transitions and uh, the way in which artists interpret history. That artists are constantly interpreting history just by the nature of working through whatever moment in of their lives that they live through. Uh, you get a record of everything that's been happening because it's impossible to make work separate from life. Mm-hmm. I find the best artists <laughs> never mm-hmm. can make art outside of the zeitgeist of what's going on during that time. They absorb it. You can't help it. Mm-hmm. And it finds itself in in ways in the work. You you see it when you can look at certain artists, line them up, and you have a timeline mm-hmm. of Nigeria as it's developing mm-hmm. based on Bruce and other artists that were mm-hmm. there. And it's there. It's always there. And the story is not being told, mm-hmm. which I find aggravating <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways it annoys me i have about so much to say about what you just said <laughs> is it my turn yet go for it go for it we want to hear you it's your goal oh my goodness so firstly i do want to say i don't i don't have a problem with so-called african traditional art you know material culture objects that have functional and spiritual purpose and i do believe that um there's a lot to talk about in terms of the incredible skill and craftsmanship in the even just the mundane, ordinary functional objects. Sometimes things are not spirit, mm-hmm. do not have a spiritual function and they're still so beautifully done. Yeah. And I think there's space for that. But I think the preoccupation, especially with things like masquerade that, that people had in the colonial era and sort of this residual post-colonial era has had a lot to do with a campaign, whether they intended to or not, um, a campaign to exoticize an other Africa, not understand it, yeah. certainly not put it on par. Yeah with art movements happening in Europe. And so there has been this like, you know, overrepresented interest in that particular way of making. Meanwhile, most of those objects, first of all, the mythology of them being old is false. Most of the objects in my collection that are cultural objects are 20th century objects Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's important, and that's also important, not in a disparaging way, but in a way that uh, sort of, I hope, exemplifies and celebrates the fact that these are not crafts from the past that they're ongoing living traditions people are still making benin bronzes for example Mm -hmm. we're not precious about returning them because they're lost rare things they're being made every day by the generations of craftsmen who've always made them right right? the The lineages that (laughs) and the apprentices that have always done it are still doing it yeah um that's not why you have to return them you have to return them for ethical reasons not because oh my god what are we gonna do they're they're (laughs) just so rare yeah um so the things, the things are not a part of some mythologized past Africa, some purest post-colonial tradition. That's one. Um, and two, if you're going to have 20th century art in, at any rate, you might as well tell a more robust story about African making and art, right? And alongside Masquerade are the Bruce Rock Payas yep. and all these other incredible artists, yep. right? Some of them that I mentioned we have in our collection. They, are, they work together. They're happening simultaneously. 
Um, which is another thing that I think Bruce is implying in his work. It especially uh, is, I think, visible in the sort of implied thesis of the Victor Hekimanor piece at the end of the show. Mm. There's one work in the show that is not Bruce, and it's a contemporary artist um, who uses rosary beads, thousands of them, to create the figurative image of the Oba, who has spiritual and political power um, in Bini. And so... <laughs> I think having this uh, this notion of multiple belonging, or in some instances more like syncretism, creolization, but in the case of Bruce, I think, and in the case of Victor, it is more about a full actualization of both simultaneously rather than a creolization, which implies pieces of each. Um, that is, that is uh, also true in the aesthetic, right? that people are making masks and making paintings and sculpture and whatever you think is sophisticated. They're doing everything they're doing in Europe, right? Yeah. Paris and Berlin and salons and all these things that we learn about in our history were happening all over the continent as well. And we haven't learned about that because we've privileged exoticizing. Right. This is why they're different. Yeah. Subtext. This is why we can justify colonizing them. They are so very different yes, from us. Yes, look at these savages. We're not going to look at these watercolors because then you might think exactly they're on par with us. Exactly. Right? So even though those things were being were being made at the same exact time. Yeah. So yeah, my my mission is um, more immediately, of course, to, to tell a more robust, accurate, um, contextual true story of making in the 20th century in Africa, but by extension, telling a more robust, true, and accurate story about what Africa is in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what people need to see <laughs> all, a lot of times and, and kind of get out of the pigeonholing that happens yeah. so much. And deal with the fact that they they have some disinterest, right? Because I'm very frequently, even just today, Asked, well, how do I learn more about this thing or that thing? Google it. <laughs> Someone asked me, it's shameful, but like a couple months ago, like, so when you're in Africa, because I'm there all the time, yeah? So like, are you like, are you like, where do you stay? Are you like staying in huts? <laughs> I'm like, it's the year serious? 2023. Are you serious? Also, Google. <laughs> they drive cars and everything over here. Literally, <laughs> all you have to do is Google it. You just don't care. Right? Yeah. It's there for you. Yeah. We have mega computers in our back pockets <laughs> all day long. All you have to do is Legos, Dar es Salaam, images. Yeah. Like it's it's not it's not that far away from you. You just you really we really have like held on by we I mean the West, quote unquote. Yeah. Have held on to a very particular narrative about what Africa is, and that's enough for us. Yeah, we don't that's, want it. That's we don't, all we want. We don't want more. <laughs> we want they. And they so, live in huts. They got well, flies on their. I eyes. love my people. I'm multiple generations, <laughs> South Carolina and Georgia. I'm a yeah. Black American. I'm gonna say we do the same thing, right? We have different motivations we for do. doing it, but we, we also have this reductive, singular view of Africa. It's a, it's a it's American exceptionalism, right? <laughs> Where we think that we are the dominant, mm -hmm. most powerful, smartest people to ever exist. How can they possibly build buildings, drive cars, <laughs> have the internet? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they, it's the it's, it's racism above and beyond anything is right. what we got to call it. 
And then we've been acculturated into that racism. Of cultured racism. Unfortunately. That's exactly what it is. Because even black people would think the same thing. Yeah. Like, Ooh, you know, I ain't going to Africa. Yeah, I don't uh-uh. go, what, we were going to see some lions? Like, no, we ain't going to see no lions. We're going to, going to the club just like everywhere else we go. We're going to the strip club. <laughs> and I got a dollar machine. Having a good old time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you will not know that you are not. No, you won't know. In except, the club except with, and this is why I watch, uh, <laughs> this is a random fact, but I watch a lot of Nollywood movies. <laughs> Right. And I love it because it shows like what if the world was completely black? Right. Like, what if the lawyers, the the police officers, the merchants, the everybody, everybody is black. This is like a new world order. Guess what? That's what they do in Lagos. That's what it is. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Everybody's right. black. And, and, <laughs> and they do the exact same thing that we do, except it's just black people doing it. Like, like people can't understand yeah like how could you do it without where am i staying yeah. in a five-star hotel <laughs> well you think you sir say, yeah <laughs> they got are the roads paved what <laughs> crazy this yo there's, google there's, man there's a whole safari everywhere you, you go it's just in a safari trucking <laughs> lines it's 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 nonsense yo it's nonsense because i would I, there was a time where i'd be like well you know they're cultured this way the news only shows death and destruction and war but there's no excuse anymore. No, come no, on, we're choosing it as social fun. media accounts. Yeah. show all the lux <laughs> amazingness of the you continent. You see it. You see. Just it. you just ain't looking. <laughs> like you just choose not exactly. to look or follow or whatever. <laughs> it's there. Everything you want is there. Exactly. Man, you, you're great to talk to. Oh, well, yeah. Have so we been like, talking a long time? We, Probably. Ah, don't but you can edit it nah, however you want no, later. It's fine. <laughs> I'm gonna let the whole thing ride. It's just <laughs> this is it's gonna who be she three is, hours y'all. of me increasingly getting drunk on Chardonnay. I told you, studio drink champs today on <laughs> the, oh, the noise. Oh, but, I can say something. Uh, but I do. Kanye? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't no, go Kanye. Kanye lost a lot of money in one sentence. Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. So I don't want to let you leave without talking a little bit. How I met Lauren was we were both jurors for the Huddins Prize mm-hmm. down here in Atlanta, Georgia at the Huddins Center. Giving away fifty thousand dollars, which is a huge amount Ooh. of money for anybody, life changing amount of money. Uh, but we were part of the jury for that process. We are very honored to be able to pick um, the artists that were selected as finalists, which I thought were all amazing. Could have all deserved Ooh, so hard. much money. It was so hard. Ugh! But <laughs> it was so hard. All four of them were amazing yes. and so, so different. So we couldn't even side by side. It wasn't. No, yeah, it was apples impossible. and oranges. Yeah, it was tough. It was impossible. And so talk about the, that process of being on the jury. So we go, I haven't discussed this with anybody because I wanted to wait oh till you, you came up here to talk about it's it. It's tough. I would love to hear. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. But for me, I think ultimately what it came down to was this being such a substantial amount of money. Like who? You can't talk about ter- in terms of deserve because all of them deserve it. Yeah. You have to think about for whom would this go the furthest, right? I felt like some of the, the other three are already like they've picked up some, some steam. They're going to have their careers are already in mid-transformation. And I felt like the one that we picked was still kind of in the dark, at least here, even though he's lived here for what, 18 years, yeah, something like that. Long time. Yeah. In his graduate degrees, MFA, he got in Georgia, Georgia Southern, I believe. Mm-hmm. I mean- there was this need, I think, to make sure that that he knew he was seen and appreciated and a part of this community because this prize is a Georgia prize. 
Um, it's only awarded to a Georgia artist. Um, and that was, for me, what edged him out in what was a very difficult, yeah, very, probably the most difficult jury I've ever been on. It was tough. It was tough. And, it was tough. And I, but I was like, this is the reason for me that he very <laughs> nearly like is the number one choice. Yeah. It's, it's this, this money will go the furthest with this person. This is us saying you are welcome. This is us saying there's a broader acknowledgement of what the demography of the city in its metropolitan areas is now. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think that that was the reason why at the end of the day, because it couldn't be about talent. It couldn't have been about art in there and how good it was, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have been about who again who deserved it i mean they all were so talented yeah. it was just about how far would this go with each and i felt like it would go the furthest with him yeah and I, I think when we sat down in the process i think it was very easy to get down to top 10 and even though was, i don't even remember how many hundreds of things we looked through <laughs> uh but it, i think the top people stood out mostly so when we first get there the first couple of months it's like yo this is easy mm -hmm. they giving away money to me but <laughs> we got done those last four. I was sweating. Yeah, we got lined <laughs> the last four. The last four was uh, Jessica Self, uh, Jamel Wright Sr., uh, Shaniqua Gay, and Olu Omoto mm -hmm. uh, were the four that we got down to. Well, which was a very tough process to get it because the work, if you, when you've seen the show, and a lot of people commented that this was the best yes. uh, version of the Husband Prize show that they've ever seen. I think we picked some super strong artists. I want to also say, to that point, that jar. So normally for people who don't know how the Hudgens works, um, particularly people who may be outside of Georgia, they keep a jar in the gallery um, because they do, first they do an exhibition with all four finalists. Mm -hmm. And then they have a jar, they have four jars in the gallery where people can put pebbles in each jar for the person they think should win. And this is just the public. They don't actually pick, the jurors pick. Yeah. But it's still like an interesting <laughs> little experiment. And the jars were even. <laughs> like even the public was like, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was something else because it was so much wide range of work that was there. You have Olu with the sculptures. That Jess had sculptures too. Uh, Shanika did a whole installation uh, piece with a uh, mural that she painted on the wall, everything. Jamel had these huge fabric uh, experiments, experiments yes. that he had up there. So all of the work was so diverse, so different but also so top notch mm -hmm. for whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. It was so hard. That was like the hardest meeting <laughs> we ever had when we picked a winner. And it was so, and I think uh, Olu was just, I just loved his work. I loved we, the craftsmanship. So Olu, Olu was awarded it. Yeah, Olu, Olu was the winner. Uh, congratulations to Olu. Still got to get him on the podcast. I want to talk yeah, to him Yeah, get him in get, here. Get, um, his experience. It's going to be a four hour long talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love Odu. Olu, he Olu has like all uh, all these beautiful allegories for everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He could talk. He's great. <laughs> He's great. But just seeing the the quality of his work, the craftsmanship of it, it was, it was just stunning work, just stunning, and stuff that I haven't seen before uh, coming out of him. So I, uh, you know, definitely awarded him. And I think this is one of the things that gave me an insight to how these awards are given because having to do it, it. And two things I want to point out to people. One, make sure your work is documented properly. Because in that first round, believe me, we get so many hundreds of people submitting any excuse that anybody can give to eliminate somebody we're looking for mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. So if you're not documenting, if you're not filling out the forms properly, if you don't have a good story, if you're not representing yourself properly, 
you're automatically X'd out. It just makes it easier for, yeah. for us to, to move on and keep going. And the second thing is always have a consistent body of work that you're going to. Because it's not going to be any one piece that's going to save the day for you. It has to be multiple pieces that people are looking at that's to be so able true. to judge. That's so true. What do you think? I think so. I've been on a lot of juries by now. I'm going to take a break from juries. <laughs> This also feels like playing God a bit. I always feel like, uh, I'm like so sensitive. I'm a sensitive person. And so I always am like, I'm deciding <laughs> someone's fate and someone's bank account. Like, ah. Uh. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, I think it's definitely true. The thing that resonates most with me that you said, all of it's true, but the thing that resonates most is what you said. Like a, a long-term practice, like of doing a particular thing. That doesn't mean that um, you're making the same thing. Right. It just means that you have a very clear thesis. Right. Like, this is who I am as an artist. So whether you venture into printmaking or photography or sculpture, whatever, we can see, I, I want to use a capitalist word and say branded. Yeah. Uh, we, we can see your identity as an artist in it, right? It's, it's like, you know who you are. You have made an in intentional decision about how you want to fit into the space. That's a thing that a lot of us are looking for. Because if you look like you don't really know what you want to do or what you're trying to say. Yeah. There's some people that really can clearly articulate what they're doing yeah. that are going to edge you out. Yeah, easily. Because you, if you have, even if you have like one stray piece that you're including, it breaks up the series. Yeah. Like it makes it look like, what is this person doing? Right. And, you know, you want to have a clear, so you have to make tough choices at the end of the day mm -hmm. into how you want to present yourself. Now, the thing that you have on your side is that every juror is different. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to go through with a formula to please this particular type of person yeah. every single time. You do what you do. You do it consistently. You do it with mastery. And then you present it to the best of your ability all the time. Yep. And your story can change. It doesn't have to yep. be the exact same submissions for every single thing that you do. If you have a different way of packaging that you want to do a different grouping of stuff that you want to submit. Cause you know, I think how many did they submit six? I forgot how many images it is, but usually around six to 10 images that you're submitting to a prize like this, uh, that jurors are looking through and those 10 images can change. So mm -hmm. even you don't have to feel confined. We're mm -hmm. going back to what we were saying about Bruce, mm -hmm. have creative freedom, mm -hmm. just embrace the process, do what you do. And then you present it. And then some of it is just beyond your control. Yeah. Right. Some of Absolutely. It, some of it is, you know. Don't take it personally if you don't yeah. get selected into the finalists or if you don't win. It it really, <laughs> it's different every time. You are, if you have, I will say this. If you have made it into a finalist and you know that, they're transparent about that. Like, oh, we've got down to 15, um, but only five people are going to get it or whatever it is. Please pat yourself on the back because that is huge. Yeah. That is huge. And and to Jamal's uh, point earlier, we usually get there as jurors pretty quickly. So you made it through like the, the, <laughs> the most difficult part. If yeah. you're 15 out of 230, you know, like that's yeah. a thing. It's a lot. Yeah. Um. So if you don't win or you're not a runner up, don't be like, oh, you know, like that's something to celebrate. And just don't personalize it either yeah. because you don't know who's in the room, what they're looking for, what's important to them. Um. It is relatively arbitrary after those finalists, like who gets the number one prize yeah. because personalities are personalities. We're people, we're not machines. Mm -hmm. um, and different people in the room will advocate for different things being important. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, you may, you may have a really strong thesis, but the execution isn't as strong or 
you may have a very incredible thing that you do, but you only do one thing. Like you are the best printmaker, yeah. but you don't do sculpture. And maybe someone in the room wants to see more dynamism. They want to see someone that can do more things. Yeah. That doesn't mean that what you're doing is bad, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's just who's in the room that day. Um, truly, truly. Um, and it, but when it's a cash prize, for me, again, I'll repeat, like I tend to, and I won't be on any juries anytime soon, but <laughs> <laughs> I tend to think about for whom would this money have the most impact? Mm -hmm. Where are they in their career? Are they already, in other words, this is especially important <laughs> for, for, for me to say, and I'm saying it twice for a reason. You might be an incredible artist who's already had a million solo shows. I'm probably not going to vote for you because mm. you're already good. I'm going to vote for the person who's like, this solo show will change their career. So that doesn't technically mean you're not as good as that person. I'm just thinking about the impact of that prize and how big that impact will be yeah. before and after. Where would that person's career be? And the bigger the jump, the more I'm going to advocate for that person. So you really shouldn't personalize it and think it's a matter of like who's best. It is not it's about not, that yeah, at all. It's not about, it's at, not about who's best. In the slightest. Yeah, y'all all are great. Everybody yeah. out there, listen, you listen to the podcast, you're awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. And I've sat on juries where people care about things like dollar amount. And I like have to mm -hmm. argue with them because I don't care. Meaning, yeah. what's the price point for their work on the, on the market? And I'm like, I don't care about that. Yeah. That, that I'm is, looking at this narrative. I'm looking at this thesis. And that's the thing that people don't know is the kind of conversations that are happening between even the people that are on the on the jury, on the panel, on we are whatever fighting board. in there sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Jamal and I never fought. But I no, have, I was on fought. a panel recently, I won't say which one, where I was literally like, wow, out of my boxing gloves. <laughs> out of my boxing gloves. It's a very big prestigious prize. Yeah. And yeah, I was just like Listen, Dang. I don't care whose piece is 150 <laughs> and whose piece is 50 and whose piece is six. Okay. I don't work in the commercial gallery market for a reason. We're yeah. in a museum. There we go. <laughs> this, this prize is not about that. I do not care <laughs> about that. But there were people that, you know, had jury seats that really cared about that. They used the market as an indication for the significance of that artist. Mm. I, I have no regard. So we, we, we spar and we try to get somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And we take it seriously. So that's what y'all take uh, consolation in that, <laughs> that. That none of this is easy and we put our all into we it. We really do. And, you know, we know, we understand, jurors understand what they're doing. And yeah. hopefully we, we make the best decision we can. And that's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. So ain't no making no bones about it. It's Lauren <laughs> right here on the podcast. Thanks for coming, Lauren. Yeah, Lauren is a new friend of the show. We're going to bring her back I'm multiple back. times. She's so smart. And, and talk so well and look so good on camera that we got to keep bringing her back to get, to get our audience up. I would like to thank uh, <laughs> my mom for making me read four hours a night and this melanin. Thank you. That's what I'm going to say when I win whatever award. One day someone's going to give me an award, right? Yeah, you you deserve it. I do. <laughs> I'm going to make make an award for you. <laughs> That's what's then up, I'm going to yeah. take my shirt off, twist it around my hand and break it <laughs> <laughs> thank you Jamal for having yeah, me for sure tell them where they can find you get in touch with you tell I you thank you all that good stuff I am at L Tate Baeza on Instagram which is E-L-L-E T-A-T-E B-A-E-Z-A and I'm only on Instagram that's it that's, that's it. it I'm that's not on the Facebook <laughs> I'm not on LinkedIn that's I am the only way you get it you might catch it at the high one day come I'm see the show I'm at the High Museum of Art uh, <laughs> turns out I'm a full time employee there somehow go figure even though I'm always in, in Africa <laughs> 
According to Jamal. She's <laughs> always on the road. So try to catch it when you can. It's Lauren on the podcast. Thank you. Yo, for Thank coming. you. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bag. Big shout out to Lauren Tate by Aza. You did it, girl. That show is fantastic. Y'all got to go see it before it leaves High Museum, before July. Next week, we'll be back talking about a book from the Petrucci Family Collection of African-American Art, Shifting Time. Just in time for you to get this thing right here. All my artists out there. Just because Uncle Shay Shay leaving Undisputed don't mean you can leave that studio. <laughs> no way, baby. We still got to stay there. You got to stay down and get there. Hall of Fame status just like up. Get you in that studio, baby. It's the noise. We'll see you next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.